I was in my house. I had a knock on the door. I thought it was one of my friends, so I opened the door, and as soon as I opened it, it was just like a rush of policemen. They busted in, they started looking around, and they found everything that I had there. Somebody had ratted me out to them, and they took me to jail. And as the guy's walking me to the cell, I asked him, I said, hey, what am I facing? He said, you're facing distributing and manufacturing, drug manufacturing charges. He said, you're facing 20 years in the pen. So I walk to the cell, I sit down, and I'm thinking to myself, this is what my life has come to. I have nothing. I'm sitting in this jail cell with no clothes. It's cold. I'm by myself. I don't have any friends. You know, my friends have ratted me out. They only used me for my drugs. All the people that love me or actually love me, I'd pushed away, my family. And I looked up at the ceiling of that jail and I said, God, if you get me out of this, my life is yours. Let's start from the very beginning when I when I was born. Um, my parents were Christians. They came from Christian families. Uh, they grew up in Arkansas. And then when they were going through college, went to a Christian college and ended up getting felt, felt like they were called to the mission field. So at a young age, they went to the mission field of Taiwan. This was back when Taiwan didn't have any churches, uh, very, very few, very few, few Christians. They went over there to work with a mission organization to start planting churches. So uh, my parents were in Taiwan. Uh, I was born at a Chinese hospital in 1985, and I grew up uh, most of my life there. So from uh, being born up until about my uh, junior year of high school, I was in Taiwan. I was raised in Taiwan. Uh, we did come back to the States every once in a while uh, to see grandparents about twice a year, or excuse me, uh, about every other year. Uh, so we weren't completely just shut off from, from the Western culture or anything like that. And then uh, I believe it was my first grade year and my sixth grade year, they had come on uh, furlough. So they come back kind of on a, a little bit of a kind of a rest period where I was in a American school at that time. But all the other time I was in Taiwan, uh, a lot of people would question like, hey, were you going barefoot and living in grass huts? It was actually kind of the opposite of that. Their technology was very far advanced. Uh, I explain it to a lot of people as uh, maybe New York, but on crack. It was very large city, high rises everywhere. Their technology was really far advanced, millions of people in the city I was in. So that's kind of the setting for it. So uh, my whole life, uh, from the time I could remember, I was brought up in this other culture. Uh, I went to a Christian school. My dad was actually the superintendent of this school from the very first time that I, I started school. And then on the weekends, they, he would help with church planning and, and Bible studies and things like that. So uh, I went to this Christian school. It was very interesting. Even though I was in a uh, city of maybe three or four million people, uh, I went to this school that had this small, small town feel, this small bubble, because it was made up of Christian kids, missionary kids. It was made up of Chinese business kids and then maybe some American business kids that would, would come over and work for these large uh, factories like Nike or something like that. So we had this small bubble feel uh, in this huge city. So I was was doing Chinese classes, like language classes from, I believe it was like second or third grade, all the way up 
through through high school, you're taking these Chinese classes. And of course, I was, you know, in um, in the city uh, at the markets or going to the to the uh, mall or whatever movie theaters and having to use the language there. So uh, I was bilingual getting raised in this other culture, watching my parents do missions. So my whole childhood of uh, it's just kind of as, as you expect, right? Being raised by missionaries, uh, I was raised in the truth. Um, uh, from a young age, I can remember sitting at the table with my family, going through scripture and going through devotions and praying with them and really being trained in the way I should go, right, as, as scripture would have it. So from a young age, being submersed in, in truth and uh, um, just kind of this example of how we should live, um, I as you would think, you know, became, uh, came to a point where I realized that, you know, I was a sinner, right? I was a sinner. I was in need of a savior. I couldn't save myself. And, you know, when I was maybe, I believe it was second or third grade, you know, I had a, made a decision where it's like, Hey, I, I need Jesus as my savior. I want to follow him. And there was a true, uh, true repentance where I tried to do the right thing and tried to do what scripture would, would, uh, ask you to do as a Christian and, and put my faith in Christ and, and rely on that for salvation. So from a young age, uh, I had made a decision to follow Christ and became a Christian. But as I got older, probably around my middle school years, I got in with some bad influences, some friends around me that weren't making the the, the smartest decisions. Uh, I remember when I was in sixth grade, uh, after school, you know, sneaking into the bottom uh, floors of this high rise into the parking garage and uh, a friend pulling out cigarettes for the first time and, uh, you know, wanting to be cool like the movies or cool like the people around town and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe try cigarettes. So I remember pretending to smoke cigarettes from an early age, fifth, sixth grade. And then that moved on from those same friends influencing me in a way where, you know, they invited me out to, uh, you know, the, the campus soccer field where we would go to our school soccer field and somebody had brought some alcohol. It was some, uh, some vodka and, you know, they were pouring it in the cap of, of the uh of the bottle and uh, everybody was taking sips and passing it around and i i remember the very first time that i i took a sip of alcohol i, I put it in my mouth and i kind of swished it around and it was disgusting and i waited till they were talking amongst themselves or something and then i'd kind of go like this and spit it out you know it wasn't something that i wanted to do i knew it was wrong inside me and you know, then after that pretending with them that I was, oh, I'm tipsy and oh yeah, I'm feeling weird. You know, that happened maybe a couple times until, you know, you kind of wonder like, instead of spitting this out, okay, what happens if I swallow this and maybe I should just try that. So it went from pretending to actually swallowing it and getting tipsy and, you know, actually um, partaking in, in um, alcohol and and even getting, you know, drunk and, and uh, tipsy at times at a young age, sixth grade. So from that, these same friends, I'm not sure exactly how they got a hold of it the first time, but, you know, 
Uh, something was presented as, you know, something that'll make you feel funny. And, you know, something called hashish, which is just a really strong um, THC product, like a concentrate of marijuana. And uh, same thing. I was scared to death of it, just like I was scared of the alcohol. Uh, I, I took some hits off it one, one evening. We were outside on a balcony uh, at one of my friend's house that I was supposed to be spending the night at. And just pretending like I was smoking and not inhaling and then, you know, just keeping it in my mouth and then blowing it out, not wanting to really go down that road. But uh, again, more opportunities. The friends kept bringing that around where, you know, it, it just became something that I did on a regular basis where we would smoke hashish out of small little contraptions that we, we made or out of a out of a, uh, a small joint that we'd, we'd roll up with tobacco. And from sixth to seventh grade, this progression just increased where we started using drugs that were more intense, like, you know, ecstasy and special K. Uh, and we were not just using this when, you know, we'd stay at somebody's house, but, you know, we were sneaking out of our parents' houses uh, in the middle of the night, going to nightclubs, uh, going to bars. Um, and here we're, you know, 13, maybe 14 years old and going to these places. And it's interesting, you know, in the Western culture, if you saw a young kid come up to a bar, a young kid come up to a nightclub, obviously they would be turned away. But in this culture in Taiwan, they saw these American kids coming and they're, they're thinking to themselves, as what I'm guessing is, you know, this attracts other international, other, other Chinese people because we have Americans at our clubs. So not only were we let in the clubs, but we were found that we could walk to the front of the lines in front of these long lines out the out the door uh, around the corners. We could walk to the front and access these um, these clubs and go in and party all night, drinking and taking drugs, and then slipping home and, and slipping back into our beds at you know 5:30 in the morning as the sun's coming up before our parents are getting up. And this got so bad. I mean, it was a every weekend occurrence, and sometimes during the week, I was sneaking out all the time. It got to where, you know, I might, our family might take a trip and we go to, to Thailand and I was smuggling drugs back over, over borders, you know, that could have been in, in much, much trouble. And, you know, where I was influencing other friends doing the same, like bringing them in who wasn't involved in it and, and, um, you know, using club drugs and them sneaking out and those different things. And man, it, it just, it was such a destructive time in my life where, if there was something that I wanted or I felt like it would give me pleasure, I would do it. But yet inside I was so broken and so empty and it didn't matter how much I took. Yes, I was having fun for that moment, but I'd have to do that again to have that same amount of um, fun or that same amount of fake joy. It wasn't even real joy. There's happiness in my life that was counterfeit. And it, it got so bad, I remember there was a friend of mine who actually moved off. He moved to Hong Kong. And when he moved to Hong Kong, uh, I stayed in touch with him. He, uh, he would message me on uh, MSN Messengers. Back then, what we had, we didn't have, um, you know, 
opportunity to call each other on the phone, but we were messaging on uh, MSN Messenger chat, and we would talk on a regular basis, and, and he told me how he had gotten involved with the Chinese mafia, how they took him in, gave him an opportunity, and they started allowing him to be in charge. He kind of, over the year, kind of worked his way up where he was helping with these shipments coming from China to Hong Kong, these drug shipments. And uh, he talked about how he had got an apartment and how he had a, a car at a young age and how he had all these girls around him that um, he was having fun with and this lavish life. And you think about that, that enticement for a young adolescent guy who it's like everything the world has to offer, he was getting it. And I was here dealing with trying to sneak out and trying to do my own thing. And yet my parents were trying to pull me back, right, save me from that. And, and doing the best that they could uh, and seeing a lot of that conflict. You know, I wanted to uh, leave the life that I had behind me, you know, with that conflict and go, go and make something of myself and go and enjoy these things that he was talking about. So, you know, of course, I asked him, I was like, hey, look, if I moved over there, is there an opportunity for me to get on with the Chinese mafia? He said, well, let me let me check on that. And I'll get back with you. And I get a message back a week later. He said, there is an opening, but there's only one opening. It's a it's a hitman. They need a hitman. And I said, without even thinking about it, I said, I'm in. How do I get there? How do how do I join? And this just reveals how dark my heart was. You know, even though I was a Christian, I made these decisions that I put my faith completely in Christ. I had forgotten all that. I had ran from that completely where I had blinders on so much and my life was so dark and Satan had grasped me so much that my, my, the, the idea to murder somebody, I could do it in a split second. So I told him, I said, how do I get over there? What do I need to do? He said, I can get you some plane tickets. You need to have a passport. He said, when you come over, there's only one thing that you have to do to jump into this to this gang. Everybody's had to do it. You you simply walk up to somebody on the street, somebody you don't know, and you pull the trigger. You off somebody, and then you're in. That's how dark my life had gotten to. I said, that's fine, not a problem. I'm going to scrounge up my passport and... Uh, let me know when you're ready. So here I am, ready to leave everything behind. I approach my parents and say, hey, look, I'm done here. Appreciate it, but I'm out. I'm moving to Hong Kong. I've told them this. We sat down in the living room. I remember like it was yesterday. Obviously, that created some conflict. And, you know, my mind was made up. I was done. I was going to go join the Chinese mafia. So... I'm waiting on a phone call or I'm waiting on a uh, waiting on a, a message from my friend on on how he was going to uh, wire me funds or get a, a, a ticket bought for me. And I get a message from him about a week later after I decided and told my parents, hey, I'm leaving. I get a message that says, hey, look, it's not a good time. Uh, I just had a shipment get intercepted by the police here. Uh, I'm kind of in a little bit of hot water. He said, it's just not a good time for you to come over. Let me get back with you on that. So there was a period of time where uh, that conversation happened, and I didn't go back and tell my parents I'm not going, but there was a period of time where they told me it's not a good time. I can't come over right now to... My sister ended up graduating high school, uh, finishing up the school year. I think I was finishing up uh, my sophomore year in, in high school. And 
my parents are like, we have to do something to save our son. He's trying to move to Hong Kong. We kind of get the gist of maybe what's going on. We're just going to uproot our family off the mission field, and we're going to go back to the U.S. Because my sister was actually going to be coming back to the U.S. for college anyway. So they uproot. I ended up, because I didn't have a ticket to go to Hong Kong or really anything going on in Taiwan, I went ahead and moved back to uh, Arkansas with my parents. We moved to Conway High, or we moved to Conway, which I ended up going to Conway High that next year. My sister moved off to college, and I was there stuck with my family, my mom and my dad, at Conway, going to Conway High. And of course, I, I, you know, in the darkness that I was in, end up, you know, fitting in with the with the druggies. You know, the the first day of school, you kind of can pick out, you know, who's maybe using and who's not if you are a druggie. And I, I just kind of fit right in. And after school, we start, you know, smoking weed and, you know, snorting coke or anything we can really get our hands on. Uh, you know, this was a time where I started, you know, smoking smoking weed before I go to school every day. And, and this is an, it becomes an every everyday occurrence for me. You know, I, I just used to numb everything. Uh, my end of, end of my junior year, my dad gets a job at ASU, uh, in Jonesboro, Arkansas. So we, uh, we move again for the second time. I'm uprooted out of Conway, moved to Jonesboro, uh, again, get in with the druggies there, smoking weed every single day, uh, start getting introduced to hallucinogenics and, uh, kind of jumping into that realm as well. From that time graduated high school, had some friends that were going, that was going to be going to uh, Washita Baptist. My my parents really wanted me to go to a, a Christian school, so uh, I kind of had a free ride. They were going to pay for it, so I went to college with the the perspective, hey, it's just time to party. You know, that's what I've heard. And so we went to, went to college my first year. Honestly, don't remember a lot of the classes failed out of some classes, I'm sure, and didn't go to a lot of them. Um, and really, my first year was just a complete academic failure. But uh, I was partying and partying hard. Uh, at that time, I was actually introduced to uh, these things called festivals, where you can go and listen to music, you know, classic rock and roll. Uh, hallucinogenics are really big there, acid and, and mushrooms, and obviously, uh, weed and everything else that they have to offer, but really a, more of a, a hallucinogenic scene. And I, I went to the, my first festival, uh, my my uh, uh, first year of college. And after college, I ended up dropping out of uh, dropping out of college because you know I I, I don't think I passed enough to go to uh, my you know my second year and not just be blowing money for no reason. My parents weren't interested in. Uh, paying for my, you know, my room to go party uh, and not go to classes and stuff. So uh, I dropped out of school, uh, started selling drugs, uh, ended up kind of supporting myself that way, maybe moved in with a roommate, but still the only income that I had coming in was from uh, selling and trafficking drugs. I'd, I'd you know, would go up to, to Texas and bring a shipment of drugs back and, uh, you know, sell them with increased price to uh, a network of people that I knew. And even at that time, had some people selling for me. So trying to become uh, kind of a leader in that and, and allowing more people uh, to sell for me. So I wasn't, you know, kind of on the chopping block for the ones that might get arrested. So um, even from my, my senior year, in college, I think it's about when it started, you know, I started getting arrested for not felonies and 
though I should have. Uh, I was getting arrested in and out of jail for misdemeanors, whether it was driving uh, while intoxicated or driving while on drugs and, you know, minor in possession or, uh, you know, contributing to minors or, or you know, uh, possession of paraphernalia, just all different kinds, you know, from the time that I gave my life to Christ to my first year in school, I had a, a rap sheet multiple pages long. So I'm in the U.S. I'm selling drugs to support myself, going to these festivals now. There was a festival I went to, a widespread panic uh, show, and some people might look at that and say there's no no problems there. But, man, it's just a, a festival full of drugs. It's concerts full of drugs and people using drugs. There's a lot of... Uh, I believe some demonic things going on there, but uh, I was at a panic show. I took some acid. Man, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was walking, and then it was like a, f a switch just flipped, and it was so crazy. Like the reality that we know as reality, like humans know as reality, is switched to this alternate reality where it's hard to explain, and I couldn't come back from it. I guess the best way that I can explain it is everything. Uh, that we would talk about had a secondary meaning to it, and it all had a focal point on something. And you can't ever put your finger on that something, just a centrally focused something. And I got to a point where I couldn't even function in society. So, you know, I, I went to my parents. I was like, look, I need some help. Like, I'm, I'm having these issues. My mind's not right. I can't get right. I felt like I was never going to come back. I ended up going to St. Bernard's Behavioral Health, and they, they uh, diagnosed it with drug-induced psychosis, where uh, I took these drugs. They were bad or wasn't bad. I don't know. It, it, something connected to it demonically that flipped my switch where I couldn't even, I couldn't even function in society. I couldn't have a, a decent conversation with you, with you without thinking that you're out to get me or something was out to get me and, and my life was in danger and the ones I loved around me were in danger. So by the grace of God, it took a year for me to get my head right. I had about a year of recovery and there was some drugs that was used, some, some medicine that was used that didn't even help. It really just sedated me and made me a, more of a vegetable. And I was like, this is not going to work. So Honestly, I went to God in that time where it's like, God, please get me out of this. My life is yours. And slowly over a year, uh, those episodes slowly dissipated where they were far enough apart where I felt like I was somewhat normal again. And, and you know, even now I've never had any issues with that in the last 10 years, if not longer. So uh, by the grace of God, I, I came out of that. But after I had gotten better after that, those, uh, that psychosis, it was like I was right back doing the same things again. And I, I honestly, I tried to get my life back. I had come back to God and tried to do the right things. But again, the influences around me drug me back to that place where I was selling drugs and using drugs again, supporting myself with that, uh, you know, that, that income from drug, uh, drug sales. And my life was destructive. And this went on, man, for years until I was in my house I had a knock on the door. I thought it was one of my friends, so I opened the door, and as soon as I opened it, it was just like a rush of policemen. They busted in, they started looking around, and they found everything that I had there. Somebody had ratted me out to them. One of my so-called friends probably was jealous. I don't know. I don't. I still, to this day, don't know what happened, but somebody had ratted me out. They came in, and they found everything that I had, and they took me to jail under the charges of manufacturing and distributing. 
And these aren't just misdemeanor charges like I've dealt with before, but these are serious charges. So I get to the jail and being in jail, I, I kind of knew the, the ropes. I, I didn't want to go into general population and have to deal with everybody. I just went and told them, I was like, hey, look, I'm suicidal. Uh, I need my own cell. And they put you in this turtle suit thing. It's just like a big pad. You don't even have clothes on. They put you in this big padded suit so you can't strangle yourself with it. And they put you in your own cell. No chairs, no bed, no nothing. Just a, a cold cell. And as the guy's walking me to the cell, I ask him, I say, hey, what am I facing? He said, you're facing distributing and manufacturing, drug manufacturing charges. And I said, well, what am I facing for that? He said, he said you're facing 20 years in the pen. Mm. And how old were you at this time? At this time, I was about 22, 23 years old. Wow. So I walk to the cell, I sit down, and I'm thinking to myself, this is what my life has come to. This is it. I have nothing. I'm sitting in this jail cell with no clothes. It's cold. I'm by myself. I don't have any friends. You know, my friends have ratted me out. They only use me for my drugs. If I don't have the drugs, they're not there. So empty inside. All the people that love me or actually love me, I'd pushed away. My family, my true friends. And it was like, this is what my life has come to. And I looked up at the ceiling of that jail and I said, God, if you get me out of this, my life is yours. So just like from before, I, I, I knew the I knew the gig. I, I called, I used my one phone call. I'd already called my my uh, my bondsman. I told him, hey, look, I need to be bonded out. Get bonded out the very next morning. I don't think I slept a wink that night. I go to my parents and I'm like, okay, I can't live where I'm living. There's bad influence there. I'm ready to give my life to Christ. I said, I don't even want to be called by my middle name. My, my name is Brent Hunter Meeks. And my whole life, for some reason, my parents have always called me Hunter. They call me by my middle name. And when I came to them, I said, I want to be known as Brent now. My life is different. I'm a new man. I've given my life to Christ. And in that two-month period from the time that I got bonded out to when I had to face court, my like my, sen my sentencing date, go go before the judge and all that, I legitimately tried to live for Christ and 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 put my past behind me. True true repentance at this time. I ended up even I, I got on as a janitor at a little tiny small church my parents were at here in Jonesboro in kind of like a rough area of town. I got on with them and I would sweep those floors like like I was sweeping them for God, just doing the best that I could for Him uh, with this new perspective that I'm trying to serve God and do everything uh, for Him. It's all for His purpose, all for His glory. And, you know, started going to church with them on a regular regular basis and getting into a small group and things like that. Well, Brent, what was their reaction as as this was happening? Because obviously they, they've seen your life unfold as a prodigal son. And what, what was their reaction as you came back and started to share some of these things and as, as they, they even started to see you uh, actually walk this out? Yeah, so they were very hesitant at first. Uh, when I first approached them, they were like, no, you can't move back in with us. And then I, I somehow in passing or something was like, I was so serious about leaving my old life behind me, I'd picked out a pipe to live in. 
I literally went and found a pipe and was like, this will work. And it was going to move in that pipe the next day because I was in a place that there was, you know, a, a, a lady friend that it wasn't, it wasn't godly. And I knew I couldn't, you know, uh, withstand that temptation. So I was like, God, I'm going to move out of this place. I got to get away from this. I'm just going to go somewhere. I didn't have enough money for a new apartment or anything like that. The cops took everything. So I'm like, I'm going to move in this pipe. And I had told my parents that What do you somehow, mean by like pipe? A pipe. So it was actually behind uh, a pipe man- manufacturing. It's a concrete. They, they have concrete uh, pipes that like maybe go under roads. So they had this whole... It was like a boneyard of old ones out, and it was all grown up. So I went behind this place that I knew of, and I found this pipe that would keep me out of the rain. So, mm-hmm. so you were homeless. Yeah, so I, I was I was prepared to be homeless. The very next day, I think I told my parents, and it wasn't in the first conversation, but it was in a conversation where it's like, look, hey, can we move back in with you? And they're like, no, we've done that before. You know, they, they've seen where uh, I told them I'd do one thing, you know, just that trust that was broken, right? Tell them I was going to do one thing and then, you know, do something completely different or be okay for a little bit and then go off the deep end again. So they were very reluctant on letting me come back in their home and and being exposed to that, you know, bringing drugs in their house and things like that. So I had told them in passing in a conversation like, hey, look, I'm so serious about this. Like, I'm I'm actually going to move in a pipe tomorrow. You know, I'm going to grab some of my stuff and I've got one picked out. I'm going to head over there and uh, that way I can, you know, try to be out of this temptation. My dad stops and he's like, well, if you're going to do that, go ahead and you can come sleep in a bed at our house. So I actually moved back in with my parents at that time. And it was so crazy. There would be old friends come. It was like Satan wasn't done with me and he wanted to reach back and grab me and pull me back in. I mean, there would be people who would come and knock on their door and be like, hey, is Brent here? We've been trying to get a hold of him because I threw away my phone. You know, I threw away that number uh, that I had that was associated with everybody that I knew. And they'd be like, no, he's done. He's not coming out and actually turn them away. So it was like Satan was like coming after me to come come back and grab me. And so I had this two-month period from the time that I bonded out until I had to go before a judge and be sentenced and have a trial. And and I went and I... I uh, I think my parents ended up paying for the best attorney that I could get. I went before the judge. I remember, again, like it was yesterday, We, they called my name. We walked up there. And I remember the judge, you know, flipping through all my paperwork. And he, he probably was looking at all the times that I had been in jail before. And this was, man, just pages, like two or three pages of different stuff. And then probably looking at, all the evidence against me, what they had found, and you know me admit, admitting to it being mine, and you know all these different things, and he's just flipping through these pages, and here my attorney is, he's standing next to me, and we're, you know I'm standing next to him, standing in front of this uh, this judge, and before I can say anything, or before the judge can say, or before the attorney can say anything, the judge looks at me over his glasses, and he says. I'm going to reduce this to a misdemeanor possession. He said, I'm going to give you no jail time. He said, I'm going to give you no probation. He said, I'm not going to give you any court costs or any kind of fines. He said, I'm going to give you only six months suspended driver's license, which has nothing to do with the fact I wasn't driving. I was sitting at my house. I'm going to give you six months suspended driver's license 
I don't want to see you here in my courtroom ever again. And he hits his hammer down. Me and my attorney both turn and walk, and we walk out the big double doors, and they slam behind us, and I stand there in the hall, and my attorney stops, and he turns and looks at me and says, I don't know what just happened. And I told him, I know exactly what just happened. And from that point, if you remember, I said, God, if you get me out of this, my life is yours. I was like, that just happened. God just got me out. And I didn't rat on anybody. I didn't give up any names or anything like that. It was simply a miracle that got me out of that. And I couldn't do anything but be like, okay, now it's my turn. Like, God, my life is yours. And from that time forward, and I'll tell you, I haven't been perfect but there's been, there's been this trajectory on my life where I'm becoming more like Christ. I'm in this sanctification process. And I have put everything on the table for him where it's like, okay, God, what do you want? I mean, we all know, we all know like, okay, we shouldn't steal and we shouldn't tell lies. And, you know, we shouldn't do drugs and we shouldn't fornicate and do those things, look at things we're not supposed to look at. But more than that, like, I came to this place where it was like, my life is yours. Like, what do you want for my job? What do you want for my marriage? Who do you want me to marry? Like, everything is on the table. And I'll tell you that there's fleshly struggles in that sometimes. So it's it's this reoccurring thing that you have to continually do. But at that point, it was like, okay, where what am I doing, God? What do you want me to do? What career do you want me to go in? So from that time, I've given my life like, like true repentance. Like everything has been put behind me. Hmm. I'm ready to live for you, God. And I went back to school. I finished a degree uh, in communications, and even then, like I went to school and I started, I started out that that second year of college, and I started out with kind of what I had started with initially, you know. And it was, I'll be honest, it was motivated by money, where I wanted to be an international businessman because I like culture and travel because it's what I grew up in. Uh, but I, I had this kind of deep down urge to make some money. And I remember that second year of college, God convicting me. I remember like walking through the hall and God just impressing on me that, man, you're in this for the money. This degree is for money. I want you to change your major to communications. And I, it was like one of the first times God had ever really spoke to me. It wasn't like an audible voice, but it was impressed on me where I could articulate exactly what he said. So from that time, I walked directly across, you know, the, the, the courtyard and all that and to the communications department. And I walked up in there and the first lady I saw at a desk, I was like, hey, I want to change my major to communications. You know, what kind of classes do y'all offer? I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And they're like, well, it's like, you know, uh, speech classes and argumentation and, you know, uh, presenting a lot. You'll get up in front of people a lot. And it's so crazy because as soon as she said that, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, that's exactly what I like. It's my weakness. Like in grade school, if I got up in front of somebody, like I'd turn red and I'd stutter on my words. So here God is like, I'm leading you into a place that I'm going to use you in your weakness. So, man, I... I uh, <laughs> Reluctantly, I was like, okay, like, let's change my major. So I changed my major in the next three, 
uh, three or so years. I believe it took me another four because the first year was just kind of a bust. Uh, in the next four years or so, I, uh, I, you know, was working on my communications degree and my senior year had a, had a friend just was like, Hey, I'm in real estate. You should try it sometime. So I was like, sure. Why not? So my senior year, I got my real estate license and started, you know, my real estate career kind of dipping my toe in the water and then realized I just, I loved it. And I, started, I graduated college and started my real estate career as a real estate agent right out of college. And it was so crazy that the fact that I gave up something to God and said, okay, God, I want this, like my flesh wants this, but it's yours and you do what you want with it. And sacrificing that, I look back now, you know, 10, 12 years later uh, of that decision of going into real estate, in my real estate career, and seeing that like this this fit me so much better, and God still blessed me with good uh, finances and stuff where I can bless others with and stuff. So, man, it, it just it spoke to if you give Him something, how much more He has in store for you, and what's so much better where that fit my personality, like the structure of it. And I look back, and it's like if I worked for like an international trade company, I would have been away from my family a lot, and I would have been probably like a nine to five and just a lot of high stress, and it just doesn't fit me. So, man, God was looking out there. Um, so in that in that time that you know I, I got out of college and living for the Lord, I, uh, you know, in the, in the last 10 years or so, I, uh, I really had a heart for missions. You know, I got to see it uh, growing up, uh, see my parents sacrifice that. I love different cultures. So I started going on these short-term mission trips. Man, I, I just, I was in my element over there, preaching the gospel, sharing the good news with people who have never heard. And through this time of going on maybe a trip or two a year, I started to realize like, man, I, I really want to go on more than just one trip a year. But at this point, God blessed me with a beautiful wife. We started to have kids, had a couple uh, kids. And, you know, it's, it's hard when you have young kids and a family to just leave them for weeks at a time and then say, oh, hey, I'm not just going to do that one time a year, but I want to do it three or four times a year. Then it really takes away uh, from from uh, focusing on your children and stuff like that. It's a, it's a big strain on my wife because she works full time as well. So really had this passion and I felt like, I could do more, like God wanted to wanted, wanted me to do more. And I started realizing like God's calling me to do more because this is on this is a passion on my life. And um, I always felt like God was going to do something amazing with me uh, because of just my faith. I knew who God was. I see this, the stories in Scripture of David and Goliath or Daniel and Lion's Den. And like, I know I serve a powerful God or Moses, you know, and all these amazing stories where it's just he's using broken and normal people to do amazing things like like huge things. So I always thought like, OK, I'm a David, like I, I have a little rock and if I sling it, it's not me that's slinging it. God's going to direct that rock and kill a giant with it. So I always had that perspective after I'd given my life uh, and, and truly repented. So I felt that call to start an international missions organization. And when I started getting into this, I didn't really realize I wasn't formally trained. You know, I hadn't been to seminary school. Yes, I've been on some mission trips, but all I really knew was the Bible. So I went into this, you know, stepping into faith. And, and during that period of kind of getting all this together, I found out this statistic that was staggering. It, was, it said 
less than 1% of resources given to missions goes to UUPGs. And you might ask what a UUPG is. It's just a unreached, unengaged people group. It means there's nobody going to these places and there's no known churches among them, basically. That's what it means. So, man, my heart was drawn to that. The adventure of going to these places I've never been never been heard of or, or never never been uh, exposed to the gospel and no known uh, efforts to bring them the gospel. Uh, and I found out there was 3,000, uh, more than 3,000 of them left in the world. So I felt God, God called me to start this international mission organization that would solely focus on these UUPGs, these unreached, unengaged people groups. That was about three, four years ago. Uh, I had this this big vision that God put on my life, and I was stepping into it in faith. And it was so difficult to get this going. Just to share with you about the the pushback that that I had, it took us three different web designers and a year to get up a website. And you can go to like Fiverr.com or something and get one twenty bucks and like. 24 hours, right? It was so difficult. And that's how everything went for about the first year or two. And then when we started to launch, COVID hit and it set us back another year. But God is faithful. His timing is perfect. And we launched again about a year ago. And we are already in about 10 different countries with about 50 different projects in, in 50 UUPGs around the world. And we are projecting that within about a year, that's going to jump to about 20 countries and about 100 or more UUPGs around the world. Wow. And I'll tell you, like, this is coming from a guy who has royally messed up, right? has had this horrific pass of destruction that God has jumped in and picked up and cleaned off. And then I simply just said, God, like, like this is yours. Like, what do you want for it? And he's come in and done something so amazing. Like, this is coming from a guy that couldn't get up in front of people and speak when he was young because I'd turn red and I would, I would stutter on my words, right? Or who was... Even at even when I was tra- you know trying in grade school, was not an A B student. You know I was happy to get a a C and I had a lot of D's and maybe an F or, or so. And like man, I got you know one A and you know physical education or something. You know you know I'm not a studious guy. I don't have this formal training, but God came in and did something amazing because I allowed Him to. And it's nothing that I've done other than simply say, God, I believe that You can do it. And what do you want to do with my life? Right. Who is Jesus to you? Man, he's everything. He's the one that rescued me from my own doings. He's the one that saved me for eternity. He's the one that spends time time with me when nobody else will. He's the one that I can go to anytime with anything and understands. He's my best friend.
Brent, could you give a word of encouragement to those who are in that prodigal place as well, maybe watching right now and uh, are finding themselves in that same position? What's a word of encouragement that you can give to those who have turned away uh, from the kingdom, from the ways of God? So if you are personally going through a dark time in your life, the valley of the shadow of death, or if you have a kid who's going through that, or if you have a friend or somebody that you know who's going through that that's close to you, man, my word of encouragement is God can intervene and do not give up. Nobody is too far gone. If you remember my testimony, like I was ready to murder people. That's how dark my life has gotten to now I am pushing the gospel to the places that nobody else is going at any cost. Brent, for people who maybe are interested uh, in, in supporting what you are doing when it comes to reaching unreached people groups, um, very briefly, could you just tell us how to find more information? Sure. Yeah. So if you're interested in supporting, I'd say the two main things that you can do. Number one, we look for prayer partners. That's the the most important thing that you can do to support us is pray. Uh, the second thing is funds. You know, the, the mission work on the ground, it just takes funds. A lot of our efforts is, is sending indigenous people to these places, not necessarily sending Americans, but sending indigenous people to these places, the neighboring countries, sending them to bring the gospel to them, and that just takes funds. Uh, you can learn more about Bush Mission at www.bushmission.org. And lastly, Brent, any last words for, for people who are watching your testimony right now? I would just say if you're watching this, God is so powerful. He's so relational. He loves each and every one of you. Hopefully from my testimony, you'll see that nobody is too far gone to be saved. You haven't done anything that is bigger than God's grace for your life. I'd also say that do not limit what God can do with your life. God can take an ordinary person and do extraordinary things. And Brent, for those who are watching right now and uh, are ready to receive Jesus into their lives, uh, could you just pray for them as they watch right now? Sure. Dear God, we just, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was fully God and fully man. We thank you that he came to this earth, Lord, to live that perfect life so he could be a, a sacrifice on that cross as payment for our sins. Lord, we thank you that he rose on the third day so that, that we know that he was God. And Lord, we thank you that he gives that as a gift if we put our faith in that that we can, we can reign with him in eternity in heaven. Lord, though we deserve death, Lord, you've given us that gift. Lord, you say it's by faith that we are saved so that no man may boast. 
Lord, I pray for every single person that is watching this right now. Lord, I pray that you would reach out to them and present this gift to them in a way that they can understand. And I pray that they would simply say, I put my faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. Lord, it's not by works. It's not by our own doings. But Lord, what you've done on the cross, Lord, and if we have faith in that, Lord, we can be saved. So I pray for every single person watching right now that they would come to that decision. In Jesus' name. Hey, everybody. I hope the new testimony has blessed you, has encouraged you. Just wanted to let you know that if you are in need of help, that we have people that are ready to speak with you. So down in the description box below, in the comment section, uh, if you're watching from YouTube, if you're listening from our podcast, just look for the link that says, talk to someone who cares. Click on that, fill out the form, and somebody will get in contact with you locally. Now, this is only available to people in the U.S. right now, but we are working to get resources for our international viewers and listeners. But for right now, if you are in the U.S. and you need help, you need to talk with somebody, please fill out that form and somebody will reach out to you. God bless you, and we'll see you on the next testimony.